Evan Thomas. Today's guest is a genius aerospace engineer who worked at NASA making space habitable. He has since co-founded Verity, where he serves as CEO, employing his skills to improve water and sanitation on Earth. He is also a professor at the University of Colorado. He'll share insights about his work and his superpower. I'm your host, Devin Thorpe. Welcome to the Superpowers for Good show. Evan, I am so excited to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us today. This is going to be great. Thanks, Devin. I really appreciate the invitation. Well, uh, you know, as, I'm, as I've read about you, uh, and this is our first opportunity to connect, but as I've read about you, you know, you, you were working on, you know, how to make Mars hab- habitable at NASA, and, and now you're taking, I'm kind of imagining, I'm inferring from your background, you're kind of taking some of the, that skill set, that knowledge. I mean, you're, you got so many degrees, I can't count them, but let's just say you're smart. Uh, and now you're trying to figure out how to make the, the Earth more habitable uh, instead of Mars. Tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are from working at NASA. Yeah, sure. So I'm, I'm an aerospace engineer. My PhD is in aerospace engineering. Uh, and the beginning of my career was at the NASA Johnson Space Center in Houston. And I worked on water recycling and air quality systems for spacecraft. And that included things that were, you know, new inventions that weren't going to fly for 10 or 20 years, if ever. Uh, but we also worked on technologies that currently fly on the International Space Station today. I was the project manager for a system that's on the International Space Station right now that measures the quality of recycled water. You know, the astronauts have to recycle their drinking water every day. And the astronauts in the space station need the same thing we all need. They need clean water. They need, they need clean air. They need safe sanitation. They need uh, safe food. They need a warm environment. And on the space station, we do that through water recycling and, uh, and scrubbing the air and uh, making sure that the environment is safe. But we have those challenges here on Earth, too. You know, it's 2022, and you still have almost half the world's population, over three and a half billion people who use firewood every day to cook and to stay warm. And the use of firewood contributes to deforestation and soil erosion and black soot emissions. But really, all of those things are secondary to the immediate emissions that people breathe in every day. Uh, Because of the use of fuels like firewood, we have almost 5 million kids under the age of five who die every year because of respiratory disease. So still today, you know, we have 2 billion people in the world that don't have safe sanitation and uh, most reasonable estimates put it at over a billion people that still don't have access to clean water. So when I was at NASA, uh, my day job was worried about recycling water for six astronauts and cosmonauts on the International Space Station. But I started a company that was more concerned with how do we deliver clean, safe drinking water here on Earth. And the business model was taking, uh, adapting the carbon credit markets under the United Nations so that we could actually have a revenue stream that paid for water service delivery in Africa. And I started that company and at, and at one point I had to make a decision, you know, am I going to make a career out of being a NASA engineer or am I going to make a career out of applying that engineering skill to these same basic necessities here on Earth? So I left NASA and I've been working in the field of global health ever since. 
that is just an amazing story, really. Uh, I mean, let's be real. You're doing some really, really cool stuff. Um, let's talk a little bit about the technology and how you're deploying this in Africa. And I, I, I kind of see two aspects uh, of what you're doing. One is, uh, on the one hand, kind of a, a climate mitigation strategy, recognizing that, uh, like it or not, the climate is changing, and it'll be years, maybe decades, before we get that arrested. On the other hand, it seems to me some of what your technology is doing is actually helping to reduce climate change or, or, or increase the potential for reversing climate change, uh, sequestering more carbon in the soil, for instance. Um, tell us about how your technologies do that, uh, both of those things, if you can. Yeah, sure. So I'll tell you a little bit about the Horn of Africa. So this is a very arid region of the world. It includes Somalia and Ethiopia and northern Kenya. We've been working in that region for about 10 years. I just got back from northern Kenya a few weeks ago, where they're suffering from a five-season drought. It's unprecedented. There's now been five seasons in a row, so more than a year of drought. Uh, in the whole region, there are 40 million people facing food insecurity because of this drought. So Drought means less than average rainfall, although the definition is shifting because maybe less, maybe the average is changing as climate change makes it uh, more of a permanent situation and you have aridification in the region. But nonetheless, you have 40 million people that are relying on rains, rains for their livestock, for themselves, for their agriculture. And when you have drought, you have crop failure, you have livestock death, you have the displacement of people. And 40 million people are facing food insecurity right now in East Africa. One of the ways to mitigate drought is to make sure that groundwater is available. There, it's a natural resource, you know, in, in most places around the world, including like here in the Western United States, groundwater reserves are depleting. We've overpumped for over a hundred years. In Africa, there's actually increasing groundwater reserves. So it's an asset that can be used to mitigate changing rainfall patterns. A lot of water pumps are installed in the region to try to provide access to groundwater during times of drought and during these drought emergencies. But because you're working in a very resource constrained, poor area, maintenance of these water supplies is not guaranteed. So during peak drought, UNICEF estimates as that as much as 45% of water points are actually broken. It's not that the water's dried up, the water's still on the ground, but the water points are broken, the water pumps are broken. So we've been working on this, you know, seemingly easy, but not so easy problem of how do we keep these water pumps working? And we do it with a combination of technology, uh, community partnerships and financing mechanisms to try to increase the maintenance and operation of these water pumps so the people have water access. Virdi, our company, uh, invented and has deployed sensors, satellite-connected sensors that are installed on these water pumps so that we can remotely monitor when a pump is working and when it's broken. And then we bring in our friends at NASA. We've had a, we've had a partnership with NASA for the past three years to take remote sensing data, so data from satellites, link it up with data from sensors on the water pumps, 
and then help communities and local governments and national governments and international donors make sense of where there's water, where they're working water pumps, where do we need to offer water trucking, where can we deploy water repair teams. In total, our technology is currently monitoring millions of people's water supplies in the region every single day. It really is just uh, cool, amazing stuff. Uh, let's shift our attention though for a minute to uh, the Western United States. You're doing some work there and, and, and California. It seems like California is almost always on fire these days. Uh, um, Utah, where I'm from, originally suffering from uh, decades long drought, worst drought ever. The Great Salt Lake is drying up in front of our eyes. Um, what are you, what kinds of things are you doing in that region? And how is it helping? It's the same story. You know, we have a quarter of the world's population facing water insecurity every day. So that's 40 million people in East Africa, but it's also 40 million people who rely on the Colorado River out here in the West. So I'm in Boulder, Colorado. The Colorado River starts just over the foothills um, from, from where I am now. Sometimes it flows to Mexico. In between Colorado and Mexico, there are seven states uh, and major cities like LA and Denver uh, that rely on the Colorado River. And it's drying up. We're within 40 feet of what's called Deadpool behind the Hoover Dam on Lake Mead. So the estimates are if nothing's done, by next summer, by less than a year from now, there will be no more water running through the Hoover Dam, delivering water to the lower basin or generating electricity. So we're in a real crisis. And you mentioned this unprecedented drought. We're in the 22nd year of a mega drought. The last mega drought was over a millennia ago. So we're in a mega drought. We have 40 million people that use this water and there's less water in it every single year. And again, what do you do when surface water is drying up? Well, you drill, you drill for groundwater. And this is what's being done throughout the West, and in particular in California, about half of the water that's used for agriculture in the West and in California is groundwater. But those groundwater reserves are being used at a really unsustainable rate. The, the central, there's areas in the Central Valley in California that have physically dropped 40 feet in 80 years. So just in the past 80 years, in a human lifetime, the level of the ground has dropped 40 feet because we're pumping out that water. It's not sustainable. And at some point we're gonna run out of that groundwater. So Verity has introduced the same sensors, the same satellite connected sensors that are monitoring groundwater pumps in Africa are also monitoring groundwater pumps here in Colorado and in California. And we're working with landowners, farmers, and local irrigation districts and regulators to try to make sense of who's using the water and to see if we can support incentives to conserve that water. Yeah, it, it, it's uh, it, it's crazy in part to that that Colorado River problem is uh, so foundational in the in the agreements around the sharing because all the agreements were built assuming that there was about two x the water there ever really was. Uh, so it, it makes sharing difficult when everyone thinks they are entitled to two x what's there. Uh, anyway, uh, crazy stuff great work that you're doing there. I want to just take a minute uh, and give you a chance to, to talk about the, the business strategy uh, 
um, because this is a for-profit business, not a non-profit charitable organization. Tell us about the, the business strategy. What do you see as the opportunity, the growth strategy, and how are you going to build profit and provide a return to shareholders on top of doing all this great work? Yeah, so we start with the problem, right? You know, the problem is drought, whether it's in the Western United States or in Eastern Africa, is real. And it's caused by climate change and it's being accelerated by climate change. So what do we do? We try to better manage groundwater. Well, one of the big challenges with groundwater is data. You can't measure groundwater from space, at least not very easily. So we use our sensors to instrument these pumps so that we know who's pumping, where, when, and how. So how do we monetize that? In Africa, it's a question of making sure the pumps are working so that people have water. When we do that and we provide clean, safe drinking water, we offset the need for people to boil their water with wood. Some people boil their water, which creates a lot of emissions. Other people just drink dirty water, which causes a lot of health problems. We're able to take both of those scenarios, replace it with a with a company that is providing clean, safe drinking water, and then generate and claim carbon credits under voluntary mechanisms that are demonstrating that reduced demand for energy. And those voluntary carbon credits can be sold on the open market that let us have a profitable business delivering clean water in Africa. In the United States, it's uh, almost the mirror image. Instead of, but instead of trying to make sure more water is pumped, we're trying to make sure more, less water is pumped. There's more conservation. In California, there's the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act that requires conserving of water, but you need to actually measure what that, how much water is being used. So we offer a service. And more directly, uh, out in California, you saw this during the recent heat wave just a few weeks ago, they had 10 straight days of almost record heat. When that happens, it's in the middle of the summer, all the agricultural farms and ranches are pumping water. They're pumping groundwater, which takes a lot more energy than pumping surface water the because the surface water has run out during this drought. And everybody in LA, everybody in San Francisco, everybody in San Diego has their ACs on. So the utility gets overwhelmed. There are programs called demand response that will pay people to reduce their energy use. And our technology can take control of pumps. So we have customers where we control their water pumps with their permission, we turn them off during peak demand and the energy utility actually pays us and our own customers for the inconvenience of reducing pumping. Wow, that's fascinating. And, and this gets at another issue that once upon a time I heard, I think the statistic was something like 25% of the electricity generated in California is used to pump water. Uh, that sounded like an uh, absurd amount, but it, there is a lot of energy going to that, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. And it's only worse during drought. You know, when when you have uh, wet years and you have water in the rivers, you gravity helps you. Gravity helps move the water around. So it doesn't take a lot of energy to maybe move it over small hills or between uh, between fields. During drought, like we have now, 22 years of drought now, it's a lot more energy intensive to pump up groundwater a lot more. So these are really, really big pumps pumping up a lot of water. And we can help those users of that water conserve the water and get paid because they're also conserving electricity. Yeah. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. Well, uh, Evan, I, I am so glad you shared some of that with us. You, you really are. I mean, 
I'll have to post a link to your uh, your bio or or something because I can't include all of it uh, in in the in the write up. But but you've got such an incredible collection of degrees and experiences. I want people to appreciate that you really are uh, a friggin' rock star uh, in, in this space. So, uh, with that said, what is your superpower? Yeah, you know, I was thinking about this. Something that I've always uh, tried to do, it sort of happened naturally and unconsciously in the beginning of my career. And now I'm a lot more conscious and sort of deliberate about it. But it's finding the synergies between organizations, between teams, be among technologies, among problems. You know, I don't, there's not a lot of people that are working on water access in Africa and in California. Um, or, you know, my other day job is I'm a professor of engineering at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and I'm the CEO of this company. And, you know, I've gotten a lot of, a lot of like side eye about that over the years, right? I, my joke is I'm the, you know, I'm the, I'm the best academic in a group of, in a room of entrepreneurs, and I'm the best entrepreneur in a room of academics. And there's some, there's, there's some truth to that, because the corollary is I'm not the best at any one of those things. But by, but by being able to see the benefit of what a university can do and what research can do and what students and faculty can do, but also seeing the benefits of what capital can do and engineers and technology development and working with nonprofits and working with government, I'm, I've, I've benefited from being able to see how those things can be aligned with each other and, uh, and can help solve problems that any one of those kinds of organizations aren't able to do by themselves. Yeah, that, that ability to wear all those different hats so effectively is a rare ability. I wonder if you can think of one instance, one example of a time when wearing those multiple hats successfully allowed you to do something specific uh, to, to just demonstrate the, the, the value of that uh, rare ability. Yeah, what comes to mind is about 15 years ago, when I still worked at NASA, we came up with this idea, can we get carbon credits for water treatment in Africa in a way that generates revenue to pay for a service so that you don't always have to write grants to donors forever? Because that's often what what how the water sector works. And, you know, that required thinking about business and public health and engineering uh, and international development. But to implement it, to actually make it happen, we had to be really good at the technology and the implementation, but we also had to be really good at uh, the research. So we ran, and, and in partnership with a number of universities and researchers, we ran a randomized control trial of our work in Rwanda, where we experimentally established the health benefits uh, of these water interventions. We showed that we reduced exposure to parasites by almost 50% among children. And we reduced diarrheal incidents by over 30%. And, you know, if, if I was only wearing one hat, the academic hat or the business hat or the implementer hat, we wouldn't have done a comprehensive program like that. You, you see very few large scale op business businesses operating programs that also are trying to generate best in class research at the same time. It is, um, Really, I think a great example of your ability to do these things now, as a professor, as a, as a teacher, you're constantly and always teaching students how to do stuff. Um, uh, I, I think you're 
teaching engineering or something, right? Um, and so it's a little bit off of this topic, but I want you to think about if you were trying to teach a student how to develop this ability to work on all of the different disciplines, how to work on uh, how to wear two different hats. Uh, I mean, really <laughs> big hats, um, you know, as a professor and as uh, a CEO, how would you coach a student to develop that ability? Yeah, so the, the program I run here is called the Mortensen Center in Global Engineering. We train undergraduate students and graduate students how to work in, as engineers in the field of global development. And, you know, it used to be that engineers were taught you need to invent another gadget, right? Like the problem, the, the solution to people not having clean water is to invent a water filter. That's not the problem. And we don't teach, you know, as much as our students would love to go straight to the machine shop or, or you know, into the lab to tinker, we don't start there. We start with why does poverty exist? We start with, you know, what are the, who is poor in the world today and why did that happen? It's not random. It's not an accident. It's because of history. Uh, and it's because of, unfortunately, exploitation. Uh, and even more unfortunately, exploitation often done by, you know, Western countries like ours. So we go pretty heavy, pretty fast. <laughs> you know, I have 78 freshmen this year and they're learning about the impact of how, how, how colonialism still reverberates today in Africa in terms of very basic things like why is it that a water pump is broken? And so we start there. We, we, we don't get to the engineering for a while. We start with the history, the economics, the social issues. Um, and before we even start talking about what some of the solutions could be. And so our students are trained in economics, in public health, in history, before they even think about turning a wrench. That's interesting. That's interesting. As you think about your role as CEO and professor, is there some added layer you would add to those disciplinary skills in order to be more fully like you? The, you know, the, there, there's always a risk in like jack of all trades, master of none, right? You still need to be really good at a few things in order to add value. Uh, if, you're, if you're just a generalist, you're not necessarily making a big contribution to any team. So it's still important to be really good, at least at a couple things, but then also conversant, maybe even fluent in a few other things as well. So you understand how your piece of the puzzle fits into the whole picture. Uh, and so we embrace that, that pedagogy here at the University of Colorado, where engineering students literally take health classes and economics classes and language classes uh, before they go and practice as engineers. Yeah, that's, that's really powerful stuff, isn't it? Well, Evan, thank you so much for taking the time to, to be here with us today. Before you go, would you take a minute and tell people how they can learn more about Verity? how they can learn more about your program there at the University of Colorado, how they can connect with you on social media or otherwise, uh, just so that people have somewhere to go as they inevitably will want to learn more about the, the great stuff you're doing. Yeah, we'd love to connect with anybody that wants to work with us or potentially uh, or potentially learn with us. Um, our company is Viridy, V-I-R-R-I-D-Y.com. 
Uh, and the university program is called the Mortensen Center at the University of Colorado. So that's colorado.edu slash center slash Mortensen. And my Twitter handle is at Prof Evan Thomas. Fantastic. Well, Evan, thank you so much for being with us today. We wish you every success in reversing climate change and mitigating its effects until you're done with that. <laughs> well, we got a lot of work to do. Thanks, Devin. All righty. Let's do some good. Thank you for tuning in to the Superpowers for Good show. Twice each week, we host changemakers who share their impact, insights, and superpowers. Don't miss another episode. Subscribe today at superpowersforgood.com. That's superpowers, number four, good.com. Be super empowered. Get your copy of the book, Superpowers for Good, as an ebook, audiobook, paperback, or hardcover edition via your favorite online retailer. Interested in having me speak to your company, organization, or association? Visit devonthorpe.com. Then let's talk. Now, keep using your superpowers for good. Together, we can reverse climate change, improve global health, and eradicate poverty.